And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 269, aka Year 6, Week 19, uh, coming at you this week. A special week, because there's a bunch of us wanted to talk this week, so we're going to do more of a roundtable thing um, with the with the usual gang uh, and a special guest. So if everybody wants to take their chance and introduce themselves, again, this is your host, Richie Rich, along with... MC and... A.S. Ken Schooland and uh, Nikolai Hearing. Hello, Nikolai. Uh, and Ken, are, are we going to call you KS from now on? Are you shying away no, from no, using no. your real name? You on? can say Ken Schooland. <laughs> I just, I was just imitating you guys. <laughs> well, okay, fair All enough. KS, right, KS, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> what, yeah, whatever you want. Me, why? Well, I, I just follow instructions. I well, I told you before, right? Like I understand that you have a highly professional reputation that may need protecting. Uh, but if you wanted to air some like, you know, opinions on certain topics that you don't want to be held professionally responsible for, it may be mm-hmm. best to use a pseudonym and that's cool, right? But you've always you've always said, Nope, Ken Schoolin, Ken Schoolin. So I thought I thought maybe this week there was gonna be there's gonna be a conversation to be had that Ken Schoolin wasn't gonna be a part of and instead we we're gonna have Mr. K S all of a sudden. Uh I'm going to give out the phone numbers because that's what I do, but obviously uh, you guys don't call, and we're not going to be able to take them because there's just so many people wanting already wanting to talk. Uh, 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301. Uh, those would be the numbers to dial on just about any other week uh, if you wanted to get in on this action. Uh, again, 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301. Uh, so, Nikolai, I'm going to throw it to you briefly before we get into the show just because... I haven't met you till about 15 minutes ago, and I wanted to give you a, a, a chance to introduce yourself uh, to the multitude of single-digit listeners that we have on the Anarchist Experience. <laughs> sure, thanks for that, Rich. Um, yeah, I'm an old friend of Ken, and, and uh, we have traveled together uh, extensively. Um, I think our friendship dates back about 30 years. Wow. Um, I now live in England. Um, I am sort of semi-retired, had my own business for a while, which I sold two years ago. Um, and right now I'm um, keeping my, my head down here in uh, lockdown England. So I'm sure they told you that the, the name of the show when I introed it in the beginning was The Anarchist Experience, uh, which depending on what country you're in could have a different meaning, uh, depending on what area you're in could have a different meaning. Um but I'm sure you, they brought you on because you can relate uh, to that title in some way, I hope. Or do you want to oh, share a little bit more I, about that? I, I consider myself an, an anarcho-capitalist or voluntarist, um, if you like. Um, I do. Uh, I have been uh, a libertarian since I was a teenager, uh, which was uh, some 35 years ago. Um, and then I've gradually moved into... Uh, the from being a minarchist to being an anarchist, um, obviously an anarchist, uh, anarcho-capitalist, not an anarcho-syndicalist, any of, any of that. So not a real anarchist, according to some people. <laughs> uh, according to some people, uh, yeah. So you've, you've been in the game a lot longer uh, than I have, a lot longer than MCs have, probably as long as Ken has. Um, you said you guys are uh, traveling buddies, so I know Ken does it and Lee does it, um, you know, at conferences around the world. Do you attend those? Do you speak at those in any professional capacity? What is your what is your relationship with that like? Um, I've spoken at, at one uh, conference of uh, Liberty International in Poland a few few years ago. Uh, that I spoke on the subject of of uh, resurgent nationalism in Europe, uh, which I'm very much against, um, and. Um, and yes, going back to what you said about traveling together, uh, Ken and I, we uh, did sort of um, a, an adventure trip, uh, I suppose you'd call it, um, back in 93, uh, when we took we went by train from Europe to China. Um, I actually went all the way from Denmark to Hong Kong because I studied for one semester in Hong Kong, at the University of Hong Kong. Um, and that was quite an experience. This was back in the days of Boris Yeltsin. Everything in Russia was pretty chaotic. Um, so very interesting experience. Very cool. Well, glad to have you and we'll see how this goes, but welcome anytime. 
Um, Thank you. I'll throw it to you now, Ken. You wanted to, to uh, we, we had our little pre-show discussion on what we are going to start with. Um, you wanted to talk about Hong Kong? With everything going on in the United States right now, Hong Kong still on the mind? <laughs> Go for it. Well, what's, what's, going on? what's going on in Hong Kong now? Because for a while, there was protest, and the Hong Kongers were getting, like, disappeared and whatever, and then COVID hit, and everyone forgot about it. Like, eh, the freedom in Hong Kong not as important as much anymore, uh, but maybe so now, because it's back in the news as people tire and fatigue of COVID-19 coronavirus nonsense. Well, it actually, it becomes part of the domestic politics in the United States because um, I think that politicians during the election year are pleased to have a distraction and where uh, Trump can bash China and uh, everybody can sort of be concerned about something abroad. I mean, it's sort of relief from the constant hammering of coronavirus uh, news that we experience in the United States. But it's certainly important to the people of Hong Kong uh, because it looks like the government of China has just uh, is about to pass this National Security Act that it's going to uh, superimpose its um, military might on virtually everything that is uh, unpleasant to them in terms of every protest and and voice that's coming out against the control by China, they they now have a a, a wedge into the politics of and to the legal system in Hong Kong to extract people that they uh, that they don't like. And Is that surprising at all, Hong Kong? Uh, no, but there was always this belief that as long as the there was freedom of speech, freedom of press in Hong Kong, that they could people could push back. And pushback was somewhat effective. I mean, the, the, the government of Hong Kong, appointed by uh, mainland China, um, couldn't just... I mean, they, they had to be a bit sensitive because the, the protest was always so intense and so strong and could shut down the economy, should, could uh, generate a, a great deal of, of uh, bad publicity around the world. And um, now it looks like the government of China is going to put an end to that, and of course, at least wants to put it into it, but the people are pretty brave, amazingly brave, um, to, to stand up against this, um, this regime. But then the, the politics in the United States then says, well, something has to be done, and, um, and Trump has uh, now changed the status of Hong Kong, saying it's not a separate entity, and that has a lot of ramifications for trade um, and for uh, customs, between the countries and uh, extradition, um, all sorts of uh, status of Hong Kong with regard to trade in the United States. And I think that by hurting the trade with the United States, not only does it hurt Americans who trade, but it also hurts the population of Hong Kong. I, I really um, object to the use of economic sanctions uh, to impose will on other countries. I think rulers don't care what happens to their own population. That's why they do what they do. And um, and to uh, meet out economic consequences to the population doesn't make things better. But Trump, Trump hasn't cared about uh, trade. He's put up trade barriers vastly, and I've been astounded at how Republicans, who are supposed to be pro-trade, have, uh, have accepted all that. And ironically, uh, many Democrats have criticized him on it, even though they've been much more protectionist in, in years past. Um, oh, I've heard similar arguments from quote-unquote libertarians, which is oh, yeah. mind-boggling and frustrating as well. Yeah. So um, I guess the question then is, uh, should, the, should the government of the United States do anything about uh, Hong Kong. And one proposal has been said, well, England has recently said, okay, we're going to allow 300,000 uh, of the population of Hong Kong who have a British citizenship to migrate to uh, England. And um, I think the United States could do the same thing. It's like when the Iron Curtain went down and suddenly there was a, a mass flood of people leaving Eastern European countries it was a tremendous embarrassment to those communist regimes that people were trying to desperately leave. So it actually motivated enormous change 
in the politics all across Eastern Europe. And so in a sense, it could be the kind of thing that um, brings about um, a change in attitude. If people are leaving and voting with their feet, they just need to be, a, be able to have a place to go. And I think that opening migration of the people, if we're really concerned about their, their uh, liberties, uh, we ought to be able to welcome them here. Certainly, the, uh, open up a huge free trade zone across the United States and say, let's be, uh, imitate Hong Kong and all their astounding growth. And um, let's that talk would about be that. The best example. Let's talk about that for a second, because for, forgive my historical ignorance, um, but a long, for a long time, the narrative with uh, China's control over Hong Kong was Hong Kong thrived because China basically left it alone, right? Like controlled by the British, free trade, you know, pretty open economy, one of the freest in the world for a long time. And China could point to that and say, look, at the, you know, the, the great Chinese economy, speaking specifically of Hong Kong, uh, and, but the rest of the country was like still run under, you know, the, the, the hard nosed communist aspect of it. Uh, but they, they could point to Hong Kong and say, no, no, no free trade. Um, and part of it was, you know, the reason that Hong Kong thrived is because China was so hands off for so long, uh, because it was doing so well on its own. So what, what caught me off guard, cause I don't pay attention to Chinese and Hong Kong politics too much, um, was all the crackdowns all of a sudden. So what changed, I guess, or, you know, if you don't know, that's fine too. But what changed in the eyes of the, the Chinese government where all of a sudden Hong Kong w became a problem and required this type of military response? Maybe Nikolai would want to take this up because you've lived there, haven't you, Nikolai? Yeah, temporarily. Um, well, I mean, I, I can only speculate, but um, I think that um, uh, the Chinese have wanted to, to crack down on Hong Kong for quite a while. They've just been awaiting the right opportunity to do so. And uh, I think COVID-19 was exactly that um, uh, opportunity. I mean, it has kind of prevented uh, large-scale demonstrations, which um, just, I think, a year ago attracted millions of people uh, in the streets, um, that is unlikely to happen now. And, and uh, so right. it seems like an opportune moment, moment for the Chinese government to, to do what they had wanted to do for, for a while, for quite a while. So I don't think there's a change of policy, Chinese policy per se. Well, it's but just, even, uh, that even those protests in the streets seemed out of place all of a sudden, right? Again, I'm, I, I wasn't on the ground, wasn't really following it. But from, you know, from the eyes of a layperson going like, huh, I thought China was pretty hands off on Hong Kong. What are they, why are they protesting the Chinese government in Hong Kong if the Hong Kong, you know, if, if China wasn't doing much over there? And then COVID happened, right? Like there, there were already protests going on, uh, you know, the, the, the Hong Kong, the citizens of Hong Kong, I guess, for lack of a better term, versus the Chinese government and the Chinese police, um, uh, was was going on like you said like a year ago and then covid happened and it's given the the chinese military and government a new opportunity uh to crack down maybe harder than they were able to last year uh yes but it's still it, it it was it the the spark started last year like what so we got to go back well, even further than covid there were uh for a long time the xi jinping and the communist party of china um were very upset that people in in Hong Kong were very critical and free to speak against the uh, communist regime. So they, the the spark, is, as I see it, was when they instructed the government of Hong Kong to pass a, an extradition law. Now they had been previously the the government of China had been previously kidnapping, uh, you know, people who were uh, leading movements of the anti-communist party and a communist uh, regime and uh, bookstore owners and so on. Uh, but now they were going to authorize and legal legalize extradition. Anytime the government okay. of China protested something about the way they were doing it in Hong Kong, uh, the government of Hong Kong would hand them over. And that's what spoke, broke the, the, all of the enormous protests uh, throughout okay. Hong Kong. This is really tearing down the separation, the the one 
country two systems agreement after 1997. Yeah. And so that, that sparked it. And now um, the, the fact that there was such an out, um, a protest that was uh, obvious and, and strong, that's when the Chinese Communist Party said, okay, um, we're going to just uh, uh, allow our troops now to go in and do whatever our bidding is. Okay. Allow me to play devil's advocate real quick because I don't want to sound like I'm taking the side of the you know Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but if you're if you're the people in Hong Kong protesting against the Communist Party or speaking ill of it, uh, aren't you basically like poking the bear from really close range? Like they've left you alone for years, right? Or you know they left Hong Kong alone for years to do their own thing and have you know that. Uh, which you described as a, a two-state whatever solution, uh, Ken. So why why would you antagonize uh, the the Chinese government when you're you're basically insulated from their control by virtue of being Hong Kong? Well, how, how do you prevent free people from uh, criticizing another government? Well, you d- you don't prevent it, but I'm saying from the people's perspective, why would you antagonize? like that knowing that because the, because they're free and they they know okay. china is is a bunch of bullshit and so i i think what what happened was that china was trying to quietly uh introduce uh more control more mainland control of hong kong and uh in order to um, not let them get away with that i mean large demonstrations were needed to to highlight this fact that they were undermining the basic law which was um uh, basically, the, the law that was agreed um, would be valid for Hong Kong uh, post-1997. Um, uh, so really, the demonstrations were meant to highlight the fact that the Communist Party was trying to introduce this quietly um, okay. and, and to put it that way. That's fair. MC? Yeah, but I, I think my, my point is still valid. That it's, it's not exactly following the, the discussion so much but um, yeah if it, it's, it, it would be like uh, what, what if the US government doesn't want people criticizing China well then they necessarily have to get rid of freedom of speech yeah and so if Hong Kong has some freedom of speech and, and uh, China wanted them to you know the people of Hong Kong not to criticize China then they'd have to eliminate that so yeah, I guess I, I, for comparison here, it'd be in my mind, it'd be more like Puerto Rico or something having like the, one of the freest economies in the world, right? Being basically left alone by mainland United States and then talking shit about mainland United States to the point where they go, well, if you want to talk shit, we're just going to come and, you know, reclaim you and I know, take but, yeah. but they would. Because if, if you know your model is better, then you would say, hey, U.S., get your shit together. You're doing it wrong. And uh, Would yeah, you? It's kinda, it's, it, Why well, would yeah, you? It's, just it's, just take all I, the benefits, man, and if, don't if poke the bear. In, if I lived in Sweden and uh, you know people were um, doing the, the whole lockdown thing in the U.S., I'd say, hey, U.S., you're doing it wrong. You don't need to lock down. That's stupid. Well, yeah, but all the medias for it. And then, yeah, but you can do. You're doing that all away from Sweden, though. What I'm saying is, pro- but it doesn't pro- matter. Approximately, do all right. Free, free people are free to criticize things that are stupid, and they will. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Look, no, I look totally get how, it. Look at how the people in Minneapolis have risen up in rebellion against, uh, you know, the police treatment on a single incident that they know occurs pervasively. It's just that this incident was recorded and, and was very public. It's the same kind of reaction that people of Hong Kong have had. Uh, they know that the government of, of China has increased their controls over the population in China tr- tremendously with controls over free speech and yeah. this social control system, social credit system that monitors everything of everybody's life and tells them what they must do or must not do. and. And they they saw it coming to Hong Kong as well. They saw this extradition treaty as part of, well, actually, remember, people who were owning bookstores of books that were critical of the Chinese government were actually being disappeared. They, would le- they were suddenly yeah. gone from Hong Kong. They were taken to uh, places inside mainland China, prosecuted, and then 
went publicly saying, you know, disavowing what they all saying, well, we're sorry, we, do, we won't do that again, clearly under duress. And yeah. uh, they saw this coming down the road for the rest of them. And that would be the same kind of thing we see in America when people see injustices occur on a broad scale. Okay. I, I buy into that, and Nikolai, I buy into your answer that it, the Chinese government was trying to do it more quietly. Um, yeah, I think I, they have. A, yeah, I think they have a, a long-term master plan. The Chinese uh, government, because uh, after 1997, uh, Hong Kong was was promised 50 years of free capitalism, uh, and that period ends in 2047. Um, so what I so there's a long way to go, even for that. Uh, yeah, but what I think is that the, the Chinese government is trying to gradually and bit by bit uh, assert more control over Hong Kong so that when we get to 2047, uh, they will not be faced with demands for um, continued independence um, or continued, continued capitalism, because by that time, they're, they, already con they already control Hong Kong, Hong Kong 100%. Uh, uh, that's just speculation from my side, but it certainly fits... Yeah, yeah. Uh, the path in so far. Like I said, I, that of everything I've heard so far, that probably makes the most sense. So, spe speculation or otherwise, like you said, it, it does fit. Uh, you know, it's a believable narrative. I guess is what I'm trying mm. to say. Yeah. Right. Now, another interesting. Oh yeah, go ahead, Matthew. Now I was I was going to say that to, to me the the biggest hypocrisy is people in the U.S. saying uh, you know they should they should keep their their freedom, uh, but they they don't care about uh, how much freedoms we're, we're losing in the U.S. It's like we we should you know the U.S. should be the economic free zone, uh, even even more so than than Hong Kong, uh, and we should be attracting those people to come to the U.S. In fact, we should we should open our our doors to them. Um, that seems I, like I, a good thing to say. Where are you? Am I missing something? Are you saying there's no, some hypocrisy no, involved be, there? Well, because. Uh, free free people in Hong Kong. Why would they want to come to the U.S. where it's less free? At the oh. moment. <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, that's a great point. With the lockdown here, yeah. Why would they want to come here? <laughs> well, because they're thinking long term as opposed to sure. short term, right? Short term, yeah. they're probably yeah. so better off in Hong is, Kong. What I'm saying is, we should turn the U.S. into an economic free zone that rivals Hong Kong, and and rate and you know. You know, taxes are lower there, and and uh, they have more prosperity there in a smaller amount of area. I mean, imagine how great things could be if, if uh, you know, we had something like that in the U.S. or even you know, as big as the U.S. You know, all right, Ken, you kind of threw out the question early on, uh, much earlier on in the discussion of what should the U.S. response be, uh, if any, to what's going on in Hong Kong, and I think MC, you're kind of answering that is. Uh, just open up the U.S. for more liberty and more freedom and attract them here. And allow them to come, yeah. The the, the wrong response is what, uh, uh, by, by saying, well, we're going to make trade more difficult. We're going to punish China by taking away the trade freedoms with uh, Hong Kong. We're going to eliminate its separate status um, and uh, and say it's just the same thing as part of the rest of China. Well, it seems to me the the exact opposite of what you would want to do. You would want to uh, demonstrate the wrongness of of uh, Chinese government's uh, policies by being more free. That's the strength of America: the the fact that we have markets and and uh, tremendous potential from that. The wrong answer is to behave like them. Well, but I hear you, and then I also know uh, Trump's personality type. I guess I don't want to say like I know Trump personally, uh, but when when you hear his rationale behind it, um, they always you know his supporters will call it like the you know the four D or the eight D chess, right? We have to out China China so that they respond by freeing up their economy, uh, and then we can refree our economy, and then we're both free because if if we're free and they're locked down then you know everything gets bottlenecked in china and it's bad for the chinese people and it's bad for americans because look at all this competition with china so we we have to crack down now so that they ease their restrictions and then we can ease ours as speaking as the united states uh from you know from from trump's rhetoric so your thoughts on on that strategy i guess yeah on how to open yeah, it up I, I, 
I'm thinking of uh, Henry George, protectionism in all of its forms, was to your own nation in peacetime what the enemy would do to you in wartime. What would the Chinese government, they were, they were at war with the United States, what would they want to do? They would want to shut off trade with the United States to cripple the economy. What's Trump doing to the United States? He's shutting off trade and crippling the economy. Um, thank you very much, but Trump is behaving uh, uh, like the enemy of the United States economy by going against all the free market principles that were its foundation. So, Mark oh, Edge. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Nikolai. I, I just don't think that the, the Chinese are going to let themselves uh, uh, have Trump force their hand. Uh, I don't think whatever Trump does, um, the Chinese are just going to do their own thing. Um, so they won't be pushed into opening up to free trade uh, from external, from from by other countries. If if anything, it happens, it would have to happen internally in China. Um, that's I think that's much in the Chinese psyche that they won't be bossed around by foreign governments. Well, is it though? Because when Trump does these things, China seems to back off on occasion, right? Like, you know, uh, tariffs get lifted and then Trump declares victory. Like, look, China has backed off on this uh, and now we can do something else. Right. So are they is are you saying that that is strategic on the part of the Chinese government or is are they actually backing off? I think maybe that's more a question of tactics, you know, rather than the overall strategy. Okay. Um, I mean, they're, they're there, of course, they're willing to negotiate like anybody else, but to... Uh, to have a foreign government push them in a major direction, uh, like adopting completely uh, free free capitalism a la Hong Kong or uh, accept um, Tibetan independence or something like that, um, that's just not in uh, how the how the Chinese government works. I think. Okay. So Mark Edge of Free Talk Live, uh, in in multiple conversations with him on and off the air, is scared of what China could be somewhere in the future. So he's, he is, I'm going to call him out on air. He is one of those, um, you know, liberty, liberty minded individuals that wants more protection against Hong Kong. And I'll give you his reason. And then you guys feel free to rebut it. Um, and my, I'll, I'll give you my understanding of his reason just to be fair to him since he's not on to, to give it himself. Um, the, the, my understanding of his reason is that, uh, because the Chinese government is so centrally controlled that we cannot trade with them on a fair playing field because if we trade with them, we are financially benefiting uh, from the trade. And on the other hand, the Chinese government is financially benefiting from the trade. And because the Chinese government will put all their financial benefits into the military... Uh, instead of you know helping the people uh, by trading with China, we are only serving to strengthen them militarily, and that will come back to bite the U.S. in the ass uh, fifty years down the line. And therefore, we cannot trade with China at all, or we should not trade with China at all, because we don't want to uh, propagate their military um, encroachment. I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I would say if if if. Uh goods aren't crossing borders then eventually bombs will so i, I think that's probably wrong ken nikolai yeah the, yeah nikolai uh no ken you go ahead yeah this whole idea of using an excuse to cut off trade he forgets that every time there's a trade both sides win or they wouldn't do it right and uh and uh but he doesn't want china to win that's part of it he looks at the chinese winning side of the trade and goes like well, it's not a corporation, it's not a business, it's not an individual winning from that trade. It's the it's the communist central government benefiting from that trade, and therefore their benefit goes into the military, and we cannot have that. Well, it, it, look what happened in Vietnam. We thought that war was the best way to defeat the North Vietnamese. Wrong. We thought um, later... We had a completely different attitude. We opened up trade with them. They even have a, a more autocratic system than China. And yet the opening up of trade enriched 
all the sectors all across the country. I mean, that you couldn't stop the market. They were highly entrepreneurial. Um, and it's true, the government still controls and dominates the commanding heights of the main, main industries and so on. But the marketers, the marketeers, the, the entrepreneurs run circles around them, you know, all the time creating new, new ideas. And they're enriched and able to push back against their own government. I mean, we've had a, a very, very beneficial relationship with uh, Vietnam by opening up the trade and demonstrating the, the virtues of the market. And that's what Hong Kong has experienced and that, um, what we ought to be doing with, uh, with regard to, to China. You know, totally open up the trade. To say that, that it's an unlevel playing field is like saying, well, suppose that one city is upstream, way up on the mountaintop, and the other city is downstream. Now, they would say that, uh, well, they have an unfair advantage being downstream, so it's better that they, I mean, they have an unfair advantage uh, when there's uh, trade protections against us, but we have free trade um, with them. And it's like saying, well, they're upstream. It's harder to get things into their market, and it's very easy for them to get down to our market. But it's the downstream city that is much more prosperous, always more prosperous. It doesn't make sense then to uh, put our city upstream and make it harder for people to get to us too. That doesn't make our situation better. It, it, it makes it worse. Actually, it, that was an illustration of Friedrich Bastiat. The idea of uh, that the, the downstream is the, the trade flows more easily towards the downstream uh, uh, cities. They are the ones that prosper because it's easier to get to. And the ones that are protected are the ones upstream, where it's harder to prosper. Anything to add, Nikolai? Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy um, I can made there. Um. All right. Um, I with with that analogy, one of the it's it's weird because um, even especially you know I hate to bring it back to the whole COVID thing, right? But all of a sudden, um, everyone wants everything to be local again. Right. Like, no, no, no. You can't bring in outside. You can't bring in outside goods from foreign countries or even out of state in some places uh, because of the dangers inherent with that. And if we could only go back to buying locally, supporting our neighbors, supporting our our local communities, uh, local producers, then everything, uh, everything will be fine. Right. Every, everything will be better uh, if we if we don't have this global economy to deal with um, in the age of, of pandemic viruses. Um, thoughts on that? Anybody? My thought is that they're extremely ignorant of comparative advantage, specialization, economies of scale, all of the things that make tremendous prosperity possible. The, the, the planet has always been trying to advance communications and transportation so that it makes the world smaller so that you can trade with the whole world and policies like this are trying to make the world uh, you know farther and farther apart so that you can't you know you go back a hundred years where you couldn't deal with people on the other side of the planet because they're too far away that's the same effect of these trade barriers it cuts off the world it makes you very isolated with a very small uh, productive capacity compared to the world market, and um, the the loss to wealth is is astounding. I mean, if you have to produce everything, I mean, take the smallest case. Suppose you had to be so totally self sufficient, you produce everything. Oh God! Was, you know, you you can't produce even a pencil. Uh, yeah, on your I own. pencil. It would take a lifetime. I I was in a Facebook discussion with a a friend of mine. Um, a few weeks ago, I, I think I brought it up briefly on the air and she basically like wanted everything to go back to self-sufficiency. She was like, you know, it's the, the conversation started with like the elimination of money and I go, well, <laughs> that won't, obviously that won't work. Right. And, and, and then it was like, and no barter either, no trade. And I went, okay, so you're one of you, I, I pegged her incorrectly so as someone who wanted um like the the gift economy like the gift exchange mm. where everyone does everything out of you know the the benefit of their own goodwill and good heart um and she's like no not even gifts because gifts are a form <laughs> of trade right this i'm like what you're really calling for what you're really calling for is like self-sufficiency down to like the absolute minutia 
on everything. And I don't know. And if you're wondering why no one is getting behind your plan uh, on that, it's because it's probably the dumbest idea ever put forth. Robinson right? Crusoe tried it, and his life was not very pleasant. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, uh, I guess, a way of, of putting the theory of a competitive advantage in, in layman's terms is simply that uh, those who can produce a product best at the cheapest price are those who should produce it. Yes. Um, it's, it's really as simple as that. I mean, here in the UK, um, a leg of lamb uh, from New Zealand is cheaper than a leg of lamb from just around the corner. Uh, and that's simply because they're, they're better, they're more efficient at producing it in New Zealand than they are in England. And therefore, they should produce it. That's similar in Hawaii, too. Like Hawaii, there's, that's a, where, you know, I used to live in Hawaii. I don't anymore. That was a big, like, you know, buy local, support local, 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 local. I'm like, dude, everything that you, it, the stuff that comes over in boats that has all those exorbitant shipping costs are still cheaper than the local stuff. So you, you got to come back. You got to come at me with a better reason um, than just like support the local community. And I might be an yeah, outlier. I, go ahead. Go ahead, Nikolai. No, just to, just to add to that, um, actually these days, the, the shipping cost is, is minuscule in, in, uh, on most things compared to uh, the price of the product because uh, all the privately run shipping companies have become so efficient that uh, sending a, a container right across the world is, is super cheap. Quite often, uh, the most expensive part of, um, of transporting um, a good from the other side of the world to, to you is getting it through government customs in, yeah. in the port of arrival. And the Jones Act here in Hawaii yeah, was... it requires it to be on a, an American-made ship, which is five times more expensive than a South Korean ship or a Japanese ship. That's a that's that's that we could carry on that Jones Act discussion for hours just because of how asinine that whole thing is. <laughs> so if you're interested in the Jones Act, look that up, and they go, "Oh yeah, that's what they're talking about." Because I, <laughs> we we talk about it so frequently here when it comes to to trade uh, for Hawaii uh, that I don't want to make an extended discussion out of it. But it's it's always there, right? It may be, it's so cheap to ship everywhere else in the world except goddamn Hawaii because of one uh, uh, one statute. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, but it but it would also make uh, sh shipping across the, the rest of the U.S. much cheaper too, because uh, then they wouldn't have to use trucks to go across the land. Um, so probably Tesla is happy that that the Jones Act is in place because they're going to be selling their you know new electric fleet of uh, trucks across the country. But um, it would be better, more efficient, and more green if they would just get rid of the Jones Act. Exactly. Absolutely. I'm gonna I'm gonna again take a step back because the discussion moves forward and then but I have things to to throw in and questions to ask uh, a little bit taking a step back um, when it comes to the buy local phenomenon right why do you suppose it is that in every community uh, a, a similar sentiment is echoed right you know buy local keep it local you know uh, support your neighbors is this is this an ingrained um, you know, biological form of tribalism that we just can't get past where we need to take care of our, our immediate neighbors before we worry about uh, the person, you know, half a world away, even if the person half a world away can do it better, cheaper, and ship it here faster than the guy two blocks down the street? Are we just stuck in like a caveman mindset? Is that why, you know, the average person can't get past that idea? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, there's there's a tribal and nationalist element to that, um, no doubt about that. I think, um, and also uh, um, the you know all the environmentalists are often under the misconception that um, uh, goods sourced locally are uh, a lot a lot uh, more environmentally friendly to transport if they come come from somewhere close by. Um, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, the um, shipping in a container is an incredibly efficient way of tra transporting goods. Um, so rather than getting it from a truck, um, say, 100 miles away, it may actually have a less of an economic, uh, environmental and economic impact uh, to have it shipped from, from uh, across the world because the, the unit, the shipping units are so much bigger than this little lorry that 
trundles down the country road. The irony, too, is that a lot of the same people that express those concerns about buying local also have a very, you know, expressed concern about the poor around the world. And the best way to help the poor is to allow them to sell the products that they can to the richer countries who then are enriched even more because now by buying things more cheaply, they have more money to spend on other things. So um, I think that people in third world countries are desperately in need of being able to sell their things, but trade barriers and, and you might say the good intentions of uh, by local people are uh, crippling them. So I guess the, the, it begs the question, uh, how do we convince them that they're wrong and so that everyone can be wealthier off going forward around the globe? Freedom, voluntarism. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice to throw those terms out, but, you know, the, if, you look, if you look around what's going on in, in the United States right now, right, uh, the rioting aside and the looting aside, it doesn't seem like a culture that's openly embracing freedom or voluntarism, right? It, it was it was bad before Corona shut down, uh, and the amount of people cheering on the shutdown uh, kind of put it over the top for me. Uh, when I go like, no, the, there's there's no way the vast majority of people are ready uh, for for the responsibility uh, of having you know freedom and liberty in their life, let alone, you know, having the capacity to grant it to me and those of us who want it. Yeah, I agree that there's a lack of appreciation for freedom. And I, to, to, to a great extent, I have to say that a lot of that lack of appreciation for freedom is the fact that even most freedom-minded people throughout history, beginning with Adam Smith, left the education of young people in the hands of the government itself. So the government itself had every motive to extol the virtues of government and the failures of market and to give people this sort of collectivist notion that you know, the best thing you can do in education system is to obey authority and uh, uh, not think for yourself, not produce and uh, sustain yourself. And um, even I'd say that uh, all Democrats, all Republicans, I mean, even Adam Smith and Thomas Jefferson uh, uh, relegated education, the idea formation of young people, to the state. And that's, of course, the downfall. And we're paying for that now, right? Because even exactly. when you look back, it's it's been built on that model for so long um, that it's difficult for anyone, you know, it, it's... It's kind of like every new uh, significant encroachment by the state, right? You, you, they, they encroach. Uh, we, the freedom-minded, bitch and complain. Uh, the state doesn't back down. It becomes the quote-unquote new normal. And then a generation of people grow up under that new normal and can't remember what it was like prior, right? So the, the state has been built up as the educators for you know centuries now. That how how do you go back to a time? How do you convince people to go back to a time before the state was responsible for education? And how do you show them that no 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 this is actually the better way to do it? Um, and you know will will lead to more prosperity, more freedom, more wealth in the future. Does you it take a big, a, a big crash that wipes everybody out? Oh really? Well, that's the thing we we've. We're actually living pretty good lives, and and things have gotten better, I think, because of the the, especially I appreciate social media for getting around lots and lots of independent ways of getting information and knowledge and education, uh, homeschooling and and all the rest has circumvented the state in so ways in so many ways that it couldn't even think about how to stop. But it was always fragile, and this coronavirus has given an opportunity. Uh, for the the tyrants of the world to reverse all the the advantages of freedom, to give a moral justification uh, to the crackdown that that is going to lose everybody their freedom, and um, you know we just just not even a hundred years ago we were in a world war 
coup that that threatened the whole existence of of uh, freedom of of the world. And you know, you would think, and and so many sla- people slaughtered throughout that those uh, generations. Uh, the near, I mean, the great advances of the of the Soviet Union and, and China and killing their own people. Um, it wasn't all that long ago, and I keep thinking, well, you know, we're we're not entirely beyond those sorts of things coming on again. I mean, suppose that if this this lockdown cripples the economy so much that that people turn to tyrannical leaders again to you know to lead them out of the sea of darkness and into the light if they feel crushed as they were during the Great Depression. Well, who else? Are- they're going to turn to Mussolini's and Hitler's and and uh, the power uh, gatherers of Roosevelt, and uh, uh, and they're going to, you know, bring us to war again. Who else are they going to turn to, though? Because in the United States, they're only presented with basically two options, right? <laughs> like, it, we t- talk about, you know, all the, all the crap that goes down during an election year. Uh, the upcoming one for us here in the States um, is Trump versus basically Joe Biden at this point. Not official yeah. yet, but uh, it want- seems to be. I wanted to bring up something, uh, you know, change gears for a little, just a second. Go for it, or, or maybe for the rest of the whole talk here. But um, Biden apparently wrote some of the regulations that led to the uh, overuse of police force. But I, I haven't looked up to find out what those regulations are. I know he was a big proponent of uh, seizing people's property um, and then and holding it without even. Uh, having a, a court case so the civil asset forfeiture yeah, laws? Civil, civil asset forfeiture laws uh biden was had something to do with and but i don't know what else so i think that would be interesting to uh put out there because there's actually a, a, a pretty decent libertarian candidate this go around and uh because she's finally she's a libertarian shot. candidate <laughs> the, the Libertarian Party finally nominated a Libertarian for to, to run to run for for, for president. It's, it's been right. a while, probably close to like the last time she was on the ticket. Uh, Joe Jorgensen, if you're not familiar with that name yet, I think. Yeah, she, so go I, ahead. I, from what I've heard from her, I like her. But I think she gets into situations kind of like we do, uh, where we're giving long explanations, and so it doesn't go over really well. Um, I think one of the reasons Ron Paul was so successful was because he was able to give really short, simple explanations that made people think. You know, uh, my my favorite one from Ron Paul was, uh, "Well, if if we legalize all drugs, everybody's going to run out and start doing crack." You know, and that to me that made me think. You know, back then I was like. No, no, I, no, I they wouldn't. wouldn't. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't do that. And so why do I need the government to tell me that I shouldn't do that? Like, it's just it's insane that that people think that we need the government there to to prevent people from destroying their bodies. You know, <laughs> Right. Well, OK. So to kind of answer that, uh, the only thing I could say is, you know, you guys probably know more about this than I do. Uh, that's why you got the vice presidential candidate that you did from the Libertarian Party. Um Spike Cohen, Jeremy Spike mm-hmm. Cohen, however he's going to be listed on the ticket, uh, sure. to to attract the younger audience um, that may not stick around for Joe's um, lengthy dispositions. Right, and I don't know how how uh, much attention he'll get on his on his own though. Um, I think probably most of the attention will be focused on on Joe, and, and she she might put people to sleep before uh they get she gets to the end of her answer i mean maybe not i maybe I, but if you're talking I, I about was able to sit through some of her her long uh winded discussions and 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 just to get to the point but after i got the point then i felt like okay I, i've had enough now like, yeah well i, th- I, I, I think I, his I, social media aspects uh, is presence is going to be a lot better than hers oh, okay. right so if you look if you're looking at a because tra- she's gotten basically nothing right i right. mean barely a website not a lot of followers. Um, so if you're looking at attracting the younger demographic who uses, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, you know, all those, and whatever, uh, TikTok and whatever, um, I, I think that's where uh, Spike Cohen is going to thrive, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term. Um, because even even if he doesn't get the uh, the, the recognition or the attention – He'll still be the one reaching out to those demographics with her message, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But we'll see. I yeah, think- and 
So I think there's going to be enough people from the left that are pissed off about about Biden being the guy, and there's enough people on the right that are going to be tired of Trump. So I think we, I think the Libertarian Party is at least going to have record numbers, even higher than uh, Gary Johnson. And uh, they have. To. I don't know. They almost have yeah, to. If they don't, I'd, kill the party because you finally yeah. got a Libertarian in there, and if you can't right. get Libertarians to vote for a Libertarian, just, just you know, pull the plug. Yeah. Um, but besides voting, uh, this week I saw uh, a, an old video. I think it's six years old from, oh, what's that guy? Now I have to go to my channel to find it. Um, uh, le lefty guy in, in the UK, I think. Um, uh, anarchist. Oh, man. Uh, I'm not even putting a face uh, anyway, on Anyway, he, he was on TV and he was basically saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm against voting. And, uh, you know, because... The, the politicians that get elected don't represent the people. And, and the host kept saying, oh, you should vote because that's how you get the people in that you, that you want that would represent you. He's like, no, you don't get it. It doesn't matter who I vote for. They're not going to represent the people. Because like, we already know like 66, 70% of people are against these drug laws that harm people. And yet they still exist. Right. And so, it does, you know, why, why should why should anybody vote? You know, vote for left guy, vote for right guy. Nothing's going to change. They might say they're going to change things, but they don't. Exactly. So, Ken, so, go, so go that was his point: was you know that that the people are are going to do the right thing until finally, eventually, the politicians just can't get elected uh, without uh, you know walking back uh, their their terrible restrictions. So. Um, so I think he was very right. And, you know, like, and the reason I brought it up is, you know, sometimes I agree with leftists. <laughs> sure. Well, and that's the thing, right? When, when you come, when you come from a position of freedom and liberty, uh, typically you're going to agree with both sides on certain issues, right? Yeah. They're just not, just not all of them and definitely not most of them. Um, Ken, I wanted to get your thoughts, uh, now that we're talking about libertarian politics, because I don't want to rub salt in the wounds. Uh, but your guy, the guy you were advocating for last week, came in second. So close, but no cigar. Um, do you have any thoughts, opinions, or or anything, or previous information that you've had about uh, Joe Jorgensen? Um, I like her. I think she's okay. I, I, I liked Bumper more because he's been for 30 or 40, 50 years, actually, very active and principled um, with his um, his politics, but uh, I don't know her as well. But from what I heard, I she's she's quite satisfactory. Thing is, you know, politics is one thing going on. I heard her on the radio this morning on NPR, and um, it was not a real impressive presentation. I can't see that it having that she said things that won people over. Whereas Ron Paul, in a few words, uh, could say things that won people over. Um, oh, but may I ask, uh, since since uh, Nikolai is here, maybe we could take advantage of this moment to ask him what's his feeling about Boris Johnson, and and is or is there any hope for libertarian sentiments in England these days with uh, Brexit and all that? Oh, it's it's looking um, pretty uh, grim, I have to say. Um, <laughs> Boris Johnson, he is he is not a a libertarian. Uh, he is a populist, um, perhaps not quite uh, as bad as Trump, but in the same vein, I would say. Um, uh, they've just announced uh, post-Brexit tariffs on on agricultural group on agricultural goods from the rest of the EU. Hmm. Um, I mean, that'll show them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, for 50 years, uh, the Brits have been eating Danish bacon uh, ta uh, tariff-free. Now they suddenly have to uh, pay uh, tariffs on that. Um, and this is uh, following uh, Brexit, which supposedly should be to more free trade, not less. Um, and um, uh, well, Someone has to take care of the British bacon industry. Right, you, gotta, you want people to stay and you want to isolate yourself from the EU. You're going to eat British bacon and support the British bacon producers. I think everybody yeah. should have a pig in their own backyard. 
Yeah, it wouldn't be a bad thing. You know, but the, be- <laughs> the beautiful thing about living here in New Hampshire, man, is like they're for sale. And if you have a place to put them, you can buy one. Um, but uh, an interesting development in recent days is um, if, if and that actually ties back to the Hong Kong issue we were discussing, was that um, uh, the British Foreign Secretary has offered the um, uh, British national overseas passport holders, of which there are 315,000 in Hong Kong, uh, the possibility to come to the UK and settle here. Um, I think that's that's very positive uh, because I think one of the uh, biggest errors made by Margaret Thatcher back in, in her time was that uh, when she was negotiating, negotiating with China um, about uh, the future of Hong Kong, um, uh, she did not allow the British citizens of Hong Kong, because that's what they were under British rule, uh, the right to come and settle in the UK uh, permanently. Uh, she only gave him this this British national overseas passport, which allows people to come and stay for six months maximum. Um, but if she had allowed that, I mean, we could have had an influx of millions of enter- um, enterprising Chinese to the UK um, and uh, created a, a booming economy. Now, that never happened, but um, uh, this uh, could happen in a, in a, on, a, on a smaller scale now if... Uh, 315,000 Hong Kong people up sticks and, and come over here. Um, so I think that's that's um, a bright light in the dark, uh, so to speak, for Britain. Uh, but I mean, apart from that, I'm not... I don't, I don't want to poo-poo that, but it kind of it kind of begs the same question that we had earlier with, you know, the United States opening up to people of Hong Kong. And, like, what would the motivation be? You're in one of the freest economies of the world currently, Unless, unless you really foresee the Chinese crackdown to be like swift and immediate, um, you're you're kind of like you know f- in th- from the frying pan into the fryer. What does what does Britain have to offer uh, those passport holders uh, that benefit them by moving away from Hong Kong? Aside from the uh, well, at least the Chinese government isn't going to like disappear you over here. Like, what's the? <laughs> well, I I think that uh, um, the Chinese uh, in Hong Kong and elsewhere, they have a tendency to think long term. And, uh, and for them, stability is extremely important. And if they can see that Hong Kong's capitalism is going to be slowly snuffed out over the next 27 years until 2047, um, they might want to up sticks now to, uh, to be able to start afresh in, in, a, in a country with a relatively stable political situation. Okay. Well, the, let me say that uh, the, I don't think the Chinese government wants to snuff out the capitalism. They want to snuff out the uh, uh, the political freedom, you know, the freedom True. of press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. True. They've set up all these economic zones, um, Shenzhen and, and all along the coast there, to try and Im- imitate the economic freedoms of Hong Kong without any of the ec- political freedoms. Yeah, it doesn't kind of go hand quite, in hand. Well, actually, Hong Kong has ranked at the top of the Economic Freedom of the World Index for 30 years uh, without any political, I mean, without political freedoms that we normally associate with, you know, democracy and that sort of thing. But they've had freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of protest. Um, And those things will go. But, I mean, Shenzhen and Shanghai and a lot of other economic zones along the coastline are probably have higher ranking of economic freedom in terms of uh, investment and keeping your property and things like that uh, than than most countries of the world. So one, one of, sorry, go on. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just saying that one of the, the the major attractions of Hong Kong is that their legal system is fundamentally different from the mainland Chinese legal system. Hong Kong's legal system is based on based on the British legal system. Uh, which is um, extremely uh, favorable. I mean, that is that is favored by most businesses, um, and uh, it's as such. It's 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 a lot of uh, Chinese business is concluded in Hong Kong exactly because they can rely on uh, the the common law system uh, of Hong Kong rather than mainland China law. Um, and if that common law in Hong Kong, uh, the, the the legal the British legal system is going to to change to essentially become mainland China law, then I could see why 
uh, a lot of Chinese businesses and individuals may want to uh, move out. Ken? Yeah, I think it would be a tremendous embarrassment to the Chinese government to see people leaving, especially because always they've been holding out the hope that this one country, two systems uh, would appeal also to Taiwan, that ultimately Taiwan could see reuniting with uh, with uh, mainland China under this one country, two systems. But that's totally gone now because no one in Taiwan trusts or believes anything about the one country, two system system. Mm, yeah. And uh, the leadership of Taiwan is always talking about um, total sovereignty and independence, which they have essentially, but without recognition around the world. Um, so I think that China's already given up on their hope of getting that uh, unification, peaceful unification with Taiwan. If that's the case, then could you foresee, you know, uh, blockades at the airports for the people trying to leave and trying to uproot and, and head out or naval blockades uh, for people trying to get out from the waterways? Is that is that what the the the, the Chinese government will do to to prevent that uh, black mark of, of people escaping? Hmm. Um, I think initially they couldn't do that, but after the flood starts, boy, it'd be really tough to do because they they couldn't do it without tremendous shame. Loss of face is a big thing to them in the world community. So in a sense, uh, uh, I don't know. That's a good good question. Any other thoughts? Uh well, I, w I would just say that generally um, uh, the ability of people to to move out of their country and into another is one of the fundament fundamental fundamental uh, uh, you know building um, uh, guarantors of, of, of freedom uh, being people being able to flee from Hong Kong if they want to uh, is is a major. Um, you know, it's it's a major uh, uh, way to prevent uh, the mainland China to become becoming too assertive and to yeah. changing too much uh, of 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 the Hong Kong way of life. Well, and, wh and, uh, while they can, because the North Korean example is once they lock it down, too bad, so sad. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be a pain in the ass to ever get out or in again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's why that's another reason why people might want to to leave while the going is good, uh, relatively good. In after 1997, there were a lot of people in who left Hong Kong to go to Vancouver, Canada. Of course, yeah. the freedom to leave is also contingent on a place to go to, and Canada was fairly open to the Chinese immigrants from Hong Kong, much to their advantage on both sides, because uh, Vancouver region has prospered enormously because of that. And sets a good example for what could happen to any country that, that allows them to uh, uh, to come. Um, and I think that that makes the Chinese government even more nervous because, gee, uh, they did so well abroad. Maybe that's going to be an encouragement all the more for people to leave now. Yeah, which is why if that happens, I, you should be able to foresee uh, a crackdown to, to prevent that and save as much face as they can. Unfortunately, Canada has adopted this new point system saying, well, uh, we're going to restrict uh, immigrants coming for immigration purposes unless we see um, high quality, you know, they, they'll put it high quality people. By this point system, you have to have a certain amount of education, they have to have a certain amount of money, they have to have a certain amount of um, uh, skills, um, and that sort of thing. Because well, otherwise you leech off the socialist programs. <laughs> Well, but that's that's not the fault of the migrant. It's the fault of the, yeah, you're right. of the people who set up that system. Um, but it, it basically separates those who can leave from you know the, the into a two tier. The people with less income and less and and they're very much needed in any economy, and they have are highly driven to become to self improve uh, over the years. But but that could could work to the disadvantage of countries to say, oh, well, we're going to only accept the cream of the crop and um, let the rest. Uh... But, you know, I'll, I'll go back to Hong Kong's own history, the reason it prospered so well, even with some of my wife's uh, relatives, you know, who fled from uh, communist China. Um, but Hong Kong was the refuge 
for anyone who could escape from the communist system. And they prospered enormously. They went from being the poorest country in the world to the richest. It's even more prosperous per capita than the United States now uh, in, in uh, about 60 years. And it did, they did that with the high degree of economic freedom that they had. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great example of how the poorest and most destitute people, not only from China, but from Vietnam, who were fleeing the communist regimes, had a place to go. Well, it just goes to show again that if, if Canada doesn't want them, right, for whatever reason, uh, the United States policies should just be, take them. And let, yeah. we'll benefit where they have failed to, right? A, a, a friend of mine in, uh, in uh, Canada put together a calculation. He says, you know, if you just take Queen Charlotte Island off the coast of British Columbia, you could have, uh, you could have 10 Hong Kongs there on that island. I mean, it's the size of it. Right now, it's got 5,000 people. You could have 5 million people on that island. It just give it a, be it a, let it be a free economic zone, and you'd have all the prosperity of five Hong Kongs or 10 Hong Kongs there. Yeah. Alberta could have 580 Hong Kongs if they did that. Instead of, I mean, they, they make such a big deal out of the, the oil sands, they could make 100 times more wealth and prosperity by turning it into a free economic zone for migrants from, from around the world to come and, and uh, start businesses. Well, and, and, and then the state loses control. Uh, and with that, we are pressed for time. We're a little bit over our time here. Um, so I'm going to throw it around again. Final thoughts uh, from you guys over there, MC, uh, Ken, Nikolai? Nope. Have a good day. Thank you. Aloha. Nikolai, anything yeah, else? Yeah, All right. Thanks. All right, let's wrap it up then. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. You guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com. Uh, on Telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience or t.me slash theanarchistexperience. And if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash theanarchistexperience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace.